There's been one core vision that we've had because it's been a 20-year vision, and that is to turn Memphis into a city of tomorrow and what we like to call a, a venture city, a city that's based around innovation, entrepreneurial thinking, and having talent solve many of the problems that exist. Welcome to the Journey to Impact podcast, where we show you how to turn your unique passion into a strategy to change the world. Today, Ed talks with Andre Folks, the president of Startco. Startco calls itself a venture architect firm, and you're about to hear more about what that involves as well as the vision they have for the city of Memphis. It's time to get off the bench. Let's do this. Here's your host, Ed Gillentine. Welcome to the Journey to Impact podcast. I'm your host, Ed Gillentine. And I'm here with Andre Folks, the president of Startco. Andre, welcome. Hey, Ed. Thanks to have me. When we first started this podcast, Andre, um, you were one of the very first people I thought of. And one of the reasons is because I felt like you had a, a perspective on impact that was national. And a lot of people, it's, it's local, which is great, right? Uh, I think you and I have talked about this before. I feel like impact a lot of times is like real estate. <laughs> it's got some really local nuances. But the fact that you had a national um, perspective was really kind of a big deal to me. And you're just as passionate as I am about business as what I'm going to call a force multiplier for sustainable impact. So real briefly, let me give you a little bit of background on Andre. He's got a degree in finance and business administration. He spent 10 years in New York City and San Francisco working in the capital markets. And then he brought that experience back to Memphis to figure out a way to jumpstart entrepreneurship and economic growth across the region. He's got a particular passion for tech startups and for providing resources for minorities and for women in businesses. So out of all of these experiences, um, Startco was formed. Andre's on a bunch of really key boards here in Memphis, as well as across the state of Tennessee and in the region, really. He's got the credibility and respect to work across both sides of the political aisle. He's done an awful lot of stuff, but what I like most about Andre is that while he's very gracious, he's a straight shooter with a really wide perspective, and he's never afraid to try something new if he thinks it's going to be a game changer. So let's jump in, Andre. Why don't you start by giving us the cliff note version of who you are and how you got to where you are at Starco? Well, sure. Uh, well, thanks, uh, Ed, for having me here today. Uh, born and raised here in Memphis, Tennessee, so very passionate about this community. Um, actually, I played soccer growing up, and uh, soccer had me discover Iona College up in Westchester, New York. So first time up there was for a recruiting visit. And, uh, a little fell chillier up there? A little chillier, <laughs> a little chillier. But um, I fell in love with it and uh, went up there for school, played soccer, and actually started my career at a young age through, uh, through Donovan Enterprises, actually. My brother worked for Donovan, and he got me a job as a as an intern runner on the cotton exchange up there. Oh, wow. So that introduced me to a lot of the chaos that was going on on, on that floor. But also um, kind of segued into more wealth management where I was working for a, a company called Westchester Advisory Group. Um, they cleared through Guardian Life Insurance and I was a relationship manager with, with them and got to work off a book of business uh, with some fellow advisors. Did the New York City thing for a number of years um, but made the switch out to the West Coast uh, to a company called Fisher Investments, 
where I worked in uh, San Mateo, California, just south of San Francisco by a little bit. And that was actually uh, my first exposure to a lot of the technology companies that were really booming and starting to scale out there. But I knew I wouldn't stay out there forever. You know, a lot of the reasons why I left Memphis, a lot of social issues and challenges, I noticed they also existed in other communities, but they come in different shapes and different forms. And, and so I actually started to miss Memphis a little bit, had some roots here, and I uh, came back here approximately about 15 years ago. I knew I wasn't going to stay in financial services uh, when I came here, so I took a little time to, to actually uh, discover and learn a little bit about what I could get involved in. And it wasn't until I served on a charter commission to try to consolidate our city and our county government and a lot of discussion and economic development around that process came up around entrepreneurship. And so at the time, I started thinking through how can entrepreneurial development help advance our community. At the same time, my now business partner, Eric Matthews, was coming out of the FedEx Institute of Technology, thinking about startups and how that could advance our community. And we kind of came together. And that's where StartCo uh, was formed. And so StartCo is a, is a venture architect company, is how we like to talk about it today. We like to help not just startups, but partners and clients now architect new things, new technologies, new processes, new systems, new civic innovations. And so we've now worked with quite a few corporations, uh, governments, uh, those who extend contracts to us who either want to side up next to startups, want to acquire startups, Startups. Maybe they're launching new technologies of their own. And so what we kind of bring is this experience to a lot of these different clients. And so we kind of sit both on the business side of things, we're trying to advance our economy from an economic standpoint, but then also on a social impact side of things, using those same methodologies and applying it into the Memphis community. And so it's um, always a challenge. We hear new ideas every day. Uh, we hear big challenges every day, but we're excited to wake up and try to solve them. That's fascinating, and I love hearing that. I also know that over the years that we've known each other, one consistent theme to your story is your mom and dad. And what I found, uh, I would say maybe one of those interesting things of interviewing people is that a person's childhood, this seems to be across everybody I've talked to, a person's childhood has significant impact on where they are and who they are. Tell us a little bit about your mom and dad and kind of the impact they had on you? Well, they had, a, they had a great impact, right? I mean, of course, when you're growing up, you don't see this all the time, right? And, uh, you know, let me just get away from them, right. you know, type of thing. What, what I really noticed was um, they had really built a strong foundation under themselves, professionally, um, family-wise, and, and in terms of the community at large. Um, these are public servants. You know, my father went from being a public defender to you know, assistant district attorney, assistant U.S. attorney, first assistant U.S. attorney, um, state judge, and now federal judge under the Obama administration. Um, but before he became a judge, my mother was really the one who was out there really kind of making a name for herself, especially in the impact space. Um, the nonprofits that she ran, a uh, big focus on youth and education, um, you know, underserved women, um, even running the crime commission here. And one of the things I noticed when I first moved back here about 15 years ago, everywhere I would go, oh, are, are you related to uh, John and Michelle? You know, And being in these other cities, New York, San Francisco, no one talks that way. So at first I was a little annoyed. I was, I was like, oh, everyone just always asks, do I, am I related to them? But then you realize they've laid a, a pretty strong path. You know, and they have a pretty strong reputation and credibility here. That they do. So, so what's wrong with being an extension of them and maybe right. taking what they've done and taking it a little bit further, right? And, and so I learned to embrace it, um, but they've instilled a, a, a work ethic, um, a, a way to make sure we serve, um, but also understanding 
the right and wrong that sits within there. You know, a lot of times folks are, are quick to dismiss things or why are you doing this in the community? Why are you doing that? So to actually understand what a lot of that is rooted in, but actually understand approaches that can actually change it, I think is the critical piece. So, um, you know, I give them a, a lot of credit in terms of who I am and, and where I'm going. And so we'll always be that way. So a little bit of a tangent, but related to that, one of the things that I think you do really well is uh, you absorb information and you ask good questions. Uh, we talk a lot in in my day job uh, in the investment and planning world that if you don't ask the right question, you're not likely to get the right answer, right? Do you think your parents helped you build that skill or was that more something you learned, you know, in your formal education, the ability to process and then ask an intelligent question? Well, I would say yes. I mean, they laid some roots there in the yep. sense of just making sure you pay attention, making sure you listen, uh, making sure that you find the right opportunity uh, to be choosy with your words and, and how you use them. I think you then take that. And, and what I learned at a very young age working in the wealth management business, I mean, it was you work with these advisors who are really good at listening. They were very good at listening to the client, um, understanding even biases that may exist in those conversations. And sometimes when you hear that, you have to come at it a different way, right? You have to listen to them, give it back to them a different way. And they, we used to joke, we, we called ourselves spin doctors in the uh, wealth management business. I'm sure, Ed, you're, you're familiar with that. Yes. And uh, maybe I shouldn't say that out loud, but, but that's really what it is. Now, some people may look at that negatively. I look at it positively if you're spinning a quality product or service or something that's going to benefit them the right way. Yeah. So I always took pride in being able to take, let's just say, a, a client who was trying to terminate me and then turn them around and make them see the better way to go forward. And so I apply a lot of that from that industry to even the work that we do in terms of economic and community development, work with startups, work with clients, and those types of things. I think that's interesting you brought that up because it's going to segue right into the conversation about um, Starco. But most of what we really do is communication. And most of communication, I think, is listening. And then being able to figure out how it connects with that person, right? Because whether you call it spin doctor or something else, the fact of the matter is most people don't think like I think. And so if I'm going to be a good communicator, I've got to pick up on what is going to communicate an important principle to them. And when you talk about Startco, I know a lot of your listening skills and your ability to communicate have played a large part in that. But talk about Start Co. Let's just dive in and, and folks, there's a million directions we can go. I'm actually kind of fascinated which direction we'll go. But talk about what you're trying to do from a high level and some of the metrics that y'all are following to say, you know, we're hitting the target. And let's let's just see where it goes. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. There's been one core vision that we've had because it's been a 20-year vision. Mm -hmm. And that is to turn Memphis into a city of tomorrow, and what we like to call a, a venture city, a city that's based around innovation, entrepreneurial thinking, um, and having talent solve many of the problems that exist, whether that's a, um, a solution that can be deployed into the private sector, into the public sector, it doesn't matter. Now, we first entered along that journey in wanting to start more ideas and people with ideas in our community. What we noticed is, let's be honest, Memphis kind of went on hiatus a little bit in terms of entrepreneurship. Yes, we have this rich history, right? But 
what had happened in 20 to 30 years after the FedExes were founded, the AutoZones were founded, we tell the story of the Piggly Wigglies and the Holiday Inns, all fabulous, but we kind of went on hiatus, right? I think we kind of took it for granted a little bit, like many other communities did. And so what we needed was more ideas. So we came at it with, how do we just get more people to take real actionable steps to starting up? We also understood that Memphis was lacking in the information technology space, right? So where you saw the entire country, I mean, look at the S&P 500, it went from technology being less than 5% in the early 90s to being over 22% in the largest sector in the capital markets. Memphis went kind of a different direction, right, in terms of that doubling down more on traditional, you know, um, materials companies, consumer discretionary companies, and, and things of that nature. And so this was a heavy lift to get a community to think differently. And so what we realized was there, there was a dearth of, of capital here. We needed more investment. We, we also needed more talent with the expertise to actually take their great ideas and turn them into real concepts and companies. And so we spent a little bit of time, you know, going through what we call find a problem, fix a problem. You help a few companies, but you realize, did we just push them to a cliff and are they about to fall off? So you, find, you try to find more capital, more resources, more mentors, et cetera. So you extend it a little bit longer. Oh, are we at another cliff? Okay. And so we're always going through these fits and starts. More recently now, we've, we've evolved a little bit. We're trying to find who are the stronger resources that are needed in order to support startups. So we always focused on capital so much, which you still have to. But let's just face it, we don't have as much capital as the coasts do, right? And so we were losing many companies that we would work with to California or New York or some of these other areas. Then we started partnering more with our corporations. What corporations here in Memphis, when you think about supply chain, logistics, and some of those different areas, what do they need, right, in terms of new technologies? And we saw through some corporate innovation work that there are some opportunities for acquisitions, investment, and things of that nature. And so you saw us kind of playing a broker role. So we evolved from just helping some of these startups grow where we started brokering in between the startup and these corporations or other what we call anchor institutions to hopefully facilitate some type of activity, a pilot, a, a trial run with customers, et cetera. Then we started to notice, I'd say about five years ago, again, find a problem, fix a problem, our infrastructure is a bit archaic and outdated. And people wanna be in very um, connected communities nowadays. They wanna be online, they never wanna fall offline. Um, and, and unfortunately, Memphis, if you go back to 2000, we saw the United States go from 53% of households being connected, meaning wired internet to the home, to 73%. Memphis stayed flat. Right. So currently today, 48% of our households don't have wired internet to the home. Wow. Can we be an entrepreneurial community if we're not connected? That's cutting in half your talent base. And then there's other things. We have slow internet. We have the slowest internet in the country. So we started doing research. How do we become a smarter community? Well, we need smarter infrastructure. We need to access fiber more. We need advanced communities for innovation. Right. These are the things that we started thinking about and are now working on in conjunction with the capital investment, with the corporate innovation, et cetera. So what you're seeing now is Starco evolving. Yes, startups are a critical piece because we want new ideas and new technologies. But now we do quite a bit of work in what we call smart cities. Um, we do quite a bit of work in terms of government and corporate innovation. 
And we kind of sit in the middle, always thinking about how do we broker talent, technology, and capital to make that go forward. So that's a little bit more background. Happy to take that any, any which direction you'd like. One thing you said that's fascinating to me, um, I think it's Jim Collins, good, great. Get the right people on the bus, right? Uh, talking uh, talent to some degree, we'll figure out this right seat on the bus. I've never actually, until you said that, I've never thought about that from a, um, from a community-wide, right? When there's a dearth of talent, um, you, you get the talent in here and you figure out where to plug them in. Absolutely. Um, that I, so I'm really glad you said that. That's kind of got my head spinning. And it's interesting. I, I scribbled down some notes. You start with this idea of we need to get talent, right, if we want to turn Memphis into the city of tomorrow. Then we need ideas. We got the talent. We need the ideas. Uh, but then you need capital. And so you're, you're always kind of uh, uh, evolving. Talk about why you think business or economics, and I would even say maybe for you specifically, entrepreneurship is so important for impact, um, it, it, social impact as well as just the, the, I'll call it the flourishing of, of humans. Talk about that for a minute. So I'm a bit biased, right? So we believe that the methods that are being used to grow companies, um, lean methods, ways of experimenting, learning from those experimenting, scale those experiments into real active you know, pilots and continuing to move them forward, there's a process and a methodology there that goes against conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom, especially when we talk about economic and community development, was let's get an outside consultant to come in and do an analysis of the entire landscape. Well, by the time they do it, it takes a couple of years. By the time people pull it off a shelf, maybe another five years have gone by. But we're still reporting back to that, that, that white paper, that thesis that was written. The capital markets have moved beyond. They're evolving. Industries are changing in five to six year windows, whereas industries used to change in 30, 40 year windows. Right. So we need different methods of innovating, deploying systems. We believe a lot of these methods can be used for social innovation. So let's just talk about what the methods are. We're big believers in not just market research, primary and secondary research. We want to do true discovery into the community. We want to go test for hypothesis around a potential idea. First, are we even talking about the same problem? You'll see so many things in the right. community they could be talking across each other about the problem. So first, let's just figure out what aligned problem do we have. Second, sure, you have ideas, but do those features of that idea solve that problem? Maybe those features solve another problem. We need to figure that out. Third, okay, what's the price of it? People say, what do you mean price? This is an impact thing. We're, mm -hmm. we're not pricing. Sure you are. You want someone to pay for it. So how do you validate what that is, right? And then finally, the most important piece is you have to bring it to the marketplace and fit it into the behavior of who you're bringing it to. And this is something a lot of people don't think about. So what we always suggest is go talk to 50 potential customers around those four hypotheses to, to first get feedback on what it is you're trying to do. The beautiful thing about entrepreneurship is that a lot of people conventionally don't like is you're going to get feedback that's going to force you to change your idea. That's the whole premise here. Take the feedback, apply it, change. And we always suggest doing that in intervals of 10 so you can kind of repurpose your pitch and how you deliver it. Once you go through that discovery phase, in addition to all the market analysis, then we want to go through what we call the design and delivery phase. 
Let's take some time and map this thing out. Okay, you want to provide a service? Draw it up on a whiteboard. How does it work? How long does it take? And what are the assumptions associated with it? Please do that before you just launch it. Right? You do that. You fine-tune your assumptions. You maybe even put it in the hands of some people to see what they think to get feedback. Then you put a business case together. All these things can be applied to the social sector. Right. And so we bring these methods to those who are willing and able to embrace them. And we also like to use these things to get even funders to think about how they fund. Have you talked to anybody? Have you tested any of these things? Have you ever whiteboarded out what you're asking us to fund? And they're starting to say, maybe we should start looking at deploying capital the way a venture fund deploys capital. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not, not, not too much. Not much, right? right? Yep, I love so, that. So we, we just kind of believe wholeheartedly, we're not saying throw away your old methods, but it's not too much extra work to just sprinkle a little bit of this in. Yeah, let's enhance them. I, it sounds like you're saying, and I'm going to go back to the talent thing, you get the talent and then you can add this process, sure. these principles, that can become a force multiplier for good in a community. Talk about that, and, and let's take sort of the nonprofit world out. Sure. Talk about the good that you've seen in the straight-up for-profit world. Yeah, I mean, there's just, there's so many examples, you know, and I say it with a grain of salt because some are thriving and doing well, some we've lost to other communities. Sure. But at the end of the day, you're helping people go from one stage to the next in the development of their company. So I'll give you an example. You know, we were working with, um, at the time, uh, ServiceMaster, you know, and ServiceMaster was interested in sourcing new ideas, new, new tech companies, et cetera. And so we put out a, an open call. And Terminex was the division that was really interested in this. And, and so, you know, we actually uncovered a, a startup company in Ireland who came to Memphis for one of our programs we were running with these, with these companies. And um, long story short, they had created a digitized version of a, of a trap for like a rodent. And so it, it, it sounds very archaic, but the old traps, actually, you had to manually check them. I mean, we've all had to bring people out to our home and they come and check the traps. Right. Well, that's not the most efficient way to do it. So someone just basically put a little piece of technology, a little piece of hardware on there that tells you if the door closed, right? And they were like, this is great, you know? And not only does it tell you whether you should go to the house to check it, it tells you whether you should not do it, but also what is the community looking like? If you get a enough of them deployed, we can see infestations in the neighborhood. And long story short, you know, Terminex really liked this and, and found a way to work with them. Um, where they were actually able to, to put some investment into them, and we helped get them from point A to point B, and they took it from there. You know, these are things we want to see more of, you know, and, and, you know, whether it's companies we've worked with that went from two employees to now 50 employees, um, then, then yes, we've seen those. In particular, in areas where we have corporate innovation arms active in our community. So a, a lot of our anchors are here. You think about home services, you think about logistics, you think about medical device, you think about all these different areas where we've, we've played a small role in helping to ignite some of that activity. So in, in total, when we were heavily focused on startups, you know, 
Yeah, we saw a couple thousand jobs created. We saw $150 million in investments secured. Um, we were able to see $250 million in revenue secured. Now, they've done more than that beyond, but I can't take credit for it or say we had everything sure. to do with it. But yep. in the time that we were with them, those were some of the statistics that we saw. And quite frankly, Memphis is not heavily investing in this. Right. So outside we, we, money. We try to we try to show this as as proof points that maybe we should do more. Yeah, I love that. Um, I want to transition a little bit because I think I, I would love to come back if we have time and talk about like the FedEx Institute of Technology and some of these other um, sort of springboards. But why you're passionate about technology and we've sensed that a little bit. Um, dive into that a little bit more because technology to me. As an investment guy, you know, there's the technology sector. But nowadays, when you look in there, you're like, wait a minute, um, that's that's a real estate company. Uh, like tech pervades everything, whereas when we got started in the business, it was, you know, printers and computers and and maybe some, some wire or something, uh, CPUs. Um, but why is technology so important and how have you seen it uh, really touch – literally every aspect of our lives. Yeah, originally it wasn't called information technology. It was just called technology, right? And, and again, that was 4% of the market. So, you know, information technology now, as we all know, is embedded in every other sector. Whether or not they are willing to admit it or not, you know, meaning there could be companies out there who say, oh yeah, we just have an IT department. They're over there in the basement, because that's how it was for years, um, to now it's impacting the culture of the overall organization because manual systems don't work anymore. Um, and we also have to look at the fact that there's massive consolidation going on in many industries out there. When you have massive consolidation, that means you have challenges in terms of that consolidation, and information technology is what can help solve those challenges. So what we're seeing is data has become the, the leading player um, being able to better visualize your data, understand how it helps the bottom line of the business, understand how it helps grow the business, be more operationally efficient. Um, these are all the things because, let's face it, everyone is using their phones to access information. And so you have to meet them. When we talk about behavior, you have to meet them there. So, so in our opinion, information technology is something that is core to what we do, even though we may enter it through other sectors, right? So like I said, right. transportation, supply chain, et cetera, well, they're trying to be IT companies now, right? We're, we're talking with ServiceMaster. They're trying to be an IT, you know, so there, there's these different things that are going on out there um, that you can call it what you want, but information technology is a big piece of the equation. And why do you think for a city like Memphis, and there's a, I feel like there's a lot of cities like Memphis, why is that such a key for their local economies and going back to sort of human flourishing that comes with all of that? Memphis has some of the best domain expertise in the country in certain industries. What's lacking is solution expertise. Who are the builders? Who has the technology expertise to help build the widget per se, right? But if you want to talk to someone in logistics, we have the best minds in the world here, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so we have to start saying, would we not want that talent to be here and live here rather than our major corporations having to hire them outside of the region and let them work from California, let them work from Austin, Texas? So one, we're just missing a huge piece of the pie in terms of workforce. 
STEM talent is something we're majorly lacking in our community. And, and this goes back to the K through 12. Give you a startling statistic. This statistic is for America. Underserved communities in terms of not having internet, 45% of underserved communities, there's what they call a 45% homework gap, okay? Meaning they cannot complete their homework um, or even do it at all because they don't have internet, all right? So think about it, you're not even able to get started. I'm glad you brought that up because you think about the last uh, two years of distance learning for most, like, what are you going to do? And, and this goes before the pandemic. Yeah. So in a community like Memphis that has its struggles with poverty, you could, you could argue it would be a higher statistic. Okay. I can't prove that because the yeah. analysis has been done down to the zip code level. Makes common sense though, doesn't sure. it? Sure. Yeah. So, so first, you're not even able to complete the homework. And we haven't even begun to speak about the digital literacy and the digital skills you need to actually be able to troubleshoot and participate in a DIY type of world we live in. We teach ourselves how to do things through the internet. This isn't happening for too much of our population. So when they do graduate from high school and they step into higher education, the gap becomes bigger, right? When they do come out of college, and they step into the professional world, it's bigger. Maybe they're just now getting the skills they should have had in high school, but now it's gone beyond. So maybe you're just now understanding how to use simple tools you know, around Microsoft Office and things of that nature, but now your counterparts are starting to understand more advanced computational methods to use on the computer. So you're seeing in particular in black communities a huge divide, a huge digital divide that goes beyond internet infrastructure and gets into skills. This impacts our workforce. Then you have the few who do gain the skills. They want to be in communities with more people with the skills. So where do they go? They leave, right? So we're in this vicious cycle. And so one of the things we're working on in, in what we call the digital city is, one, we want to advance that infrastructure. We want to, we want to at least catch up to the national average and help push local communities to do that. And so we're happy to see the city of Memphis and their broadband initiative putting in $23.5 million to better connect certain populations or bring better infrastructure to the neighborhood so it's more reliable. Um, at the same time, we also want to put in better infrastructure that invites what we call the exceptional to come here to play. And, and so what we're really talking about here is building an urban test bed for amazing living. I mean, and what does that mean? We want fiber connected underground. We want Wi-Fi everywhere, especially in the urban core. And we wanna use the internet of things to connect as much as possible. So just imagine our street lights are communicating with building systems, are communicating with traffic lights, are communicating with smart kiosks, are communicating with our trolleys and buses. And you're able to see all this visually and we can solve better problems for mobility and working with MATA, or we can solve use cases like park the car here, don't move it again, and your phone's gonna tell you exactly how to navigate from this point forward. These are the things that we wanna grow in terms of innovation and R&D, and, and we think people wanna be there. So imagine if Memphis, and what we're trying to build is one of the most advanced environments in the country in our central business district, and then we wanna open it up and say, come play. Right? And so we're working with our local public sector agencies. We're working with many private sector folks. And then at some point, we want to open the doors and say we're open for business. So the one thing I do like about this is 
This is something the Memphis Chamber is very excited about. This is something city government is very excited about. This is something MATA is very excited about. I mean, we have the right players who are, who are all aligned, rowing in the right direction, saying, we all believe in this vision and we're going to work on it together, which is hard to do. It took us three years to get folks to kind of get to the table to do these things rather than in silo projects. So the digital city is something that we want to build a smart community for advanced problem solving, to invite startups and corporations to, to, to you know, solve these challenges, but at the same time, don't leave poor communities behind, give them an on-ramp so they could one day participate in this digital city that we're building. And, and so one of the things that's presented itself because of the Biden administration is a climate agenda. Um, so they've been really pushing climate, and, and so this is why mobility and carbon reduction and some of these different things that have been focused. So we've taken that on. And the other piece of that is an equity agenda. So you're seeing us be very intentional about data and technology to solve black business, um, to help a continuum of workforce talent and move those things forward. So there's a lot happening that have taken a while, but we like to see that they're moving forward. Well, I'm going to steal one of your phrases, uh, invite the exceptional. I love that. I mean, it speaks for itself. I do want to talk a little bit about the structural issues like related, for example, to internet access. Um, that's a very real thing. And so I think it's a probably a natural collision of the for-profit with uh, government agencies and um, not-for-profits to come together and really move the needle, right? Because if you're in a poorer community, it's tough to charge, I'm guessing, 100 bucks a month for some sort of internet. And yet, if they don't get it, what are we, we're killing ourselves, right? Um, but how have you seen that around the country? And are you optimistic that we're making strides here in our city? I am now. For a number of years, I was not very optimistic. Um, we have to understand, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars that need to be invested, right? in order to put the right infrastructure in, in order to then educate people on the infrastructure that's available, the internet service providers that are then there, then get them to actually use it, right? Because they can't pay the bills, many of our population can't today. It is a massive undertaking that then requires a ton of administrative support because there are certain programs that exist out there where you can't have a past due bill in order to take advantage of the service, mm -hmm. who's gonna go through and figure that out? So what we have seen in the past was what I call spotty support. Hey, we've got 10,000 computers, let's give them out. Oh, but wait, do they have internet? Or power. Right, you know, <laughs> these are the types of things, yeah. you know, or we give out a bunch of hotspots. Again, all good intentions, but how reliable is that hotspot for Zoom communication or virtual learning or software applications they're learning in school. So we have to be more comprehensive. What we have created, there's a book called Beyond Technology's Promise written in 1994. And there was this concept in there that we stole called the social envelope. It talked about when you introduced internet and technology to a kid, you have to think about the social set of expectations you're, you're bringing with that. If kids only think the internet and a computer is good for being a glorified typewriter or social media, then that's what they're gonna use it for. If you consider the kid and the technology a letter that you would place in an envelope, and the envelope represents the social set of expectations, many times the letter is too big for the envelope. So we fold the letter in half to make it fit into the envelope, 
folding away all the uses of the technology, the computer. We folded away photography, graphic design, software engineering, coding. It's just a typewriter. Instead of folding the letter, we want to expand the envelope, right? And so that's the whole concept of the social envelope, where you have to look at the environments, which is the infrastructure, the home setting, the peer setting, the school setting, the skills, right? All the different applications we want them to learn. And then also the village of support. What are the organizations and the people that will surround them? We have to look at that in a big way. It, it's In our estimations, it, it would cost $150 million to make a dent over the next 10 years. Wow. Will that happen? Probably not, right? To be honest. Um, these are expensive efforts. And let's face it, we're not the most wealthy city. Um, and what I mean by that is our budgets, right? Our sure. city and our county budgets. And and so I think this $23.5 million that's coming in can give us a good push. I think efforts like the digital city can give us a big push. The infrastructure bill that just came out can give us a big push. If we unite folks to form what I call a social envelope for Memphis, now we're talking, right? Apply the same concept but if, imagine if everyone has a similar vision that we're going to work on environments, we're going to work on skills, we're going to work on this and do it together, we might be able to get to the $150 million, right? Yeah. But it requires that intense level of civic realignment of partners in order to make that happen. It's interesting, and I, I don't know if this is accurate, but I'm making an analogy in my brain because you and I both grew up in Memphis, and we remember those days in the 80s um, – maybe even early 90s, where you just probably didn't really go hang out downtown, right? It was a little bit dangerous, a little bit frightening sometimes, certainly a lot of poverty. It was like sometime in the 80s, this is my perception, some of the businessmen and women of Memphis, some of the influencers said, you know what, we've been waiting for the government, we've been waiting for things to happen, now we're going we're gonna to start doing things. And I, Henry Turley is a name that comes to mind, some, some people like that. And it took a long time before you could see it. I want to say that for me, the Grizzlies coming in was a big piece of our community. But now we have, I think it's safe to say, a vibrant downtown urban community. But it took the private sector saying, we're not going to sit back. We're going to take some risk with some old real estate that we may not make the money that we typically would but we're going to do it because we think it's good for the long term. When I think about this digital divide and particularly some of these connectivity issues in the, the digital city and $150 million, and it probably we'd love it to be 250 to really do it right, do you get the sense that private citizens are starting to see how critical this is and that they're willing to get behind this? Because you mentioned it took three years to get buy-in, Right. Can you talk about just your perspective of that? Now, I may be dead wrong with that. In general, what you're talking about, yes. I, I think there are more private citizens getting in, involved. When it comes to the digital divide, I don't think most people know the state of the situation. It's ignorance. I, I think they yeah. know because the pandemic hit, but people have quickly kind of gotten back to their lives, not understanding that there's now a greater gap. So, so I think that most just need to be educated, and sometimes it's getting the statistics right. So if there's one statistic, and this is a big deal, there's one statistic that says, well, wait a second, Andre, it doesn't look that bad. This says 73% have internet to the home. You said it was like 50%. Oh, but that's including devices like cell phones. 
So yes, they technically do have, but do you want your kid, literally, this is what they do. They do their homework assignments and their papers on a phone. Yeah. No, that's not going to cut it. Right. And so when you educate them, they go, wow, we didn't know. Then you start to get the buy-in, but half the community is giving a different message. And so if we all can get together, have the same set of facts, we're we're all kind of singing from the, the same sheet of music, then I think we will see more. I think we first have to kind of, this sounds horrible, agitate folks a little bit by hitting them over the head with the harsh reality, Mm -hmm. you know? And then they say, oh, we have to do something about it. Um, There are a ton of available resources that are out there today. Memphis has to take advantage of those. There's just too much out there. And we're busy dealing with the pandemic, but we also have to find a few folks, and this is where private sector could come in, to start combing through the federal resources that are coming online and making sure it's a win for our community. These are things that we're seeing the chamber take the lead on now, which we love the fact that they're doing. They're getting buy-in from people like the chairman circle and some of those folks, but I think we're still only scratching the surface and we want to do a lot more. And I do think over the years, that's one thing Startco has done well is uncovered some resources and try to connect Um y'all's constituents, but it is such, there's so much, uh, so many resources out there that uh, it, we definitely got to do a better job. Um, talk about that hard, hard work that nobody sees getting buy-in from the critical parties that you're saying took three years. Uh, that's shockingly fast to me, um, but I know a part of that is because your credibility you know, on both sides of the aisle and all that stuff. But but talk about how important it is and yet how hard it is, how patient you've got to be. Well, remember, a lot of this work we're talking about is like launching your own startup itself. I mean, you're trying to go from being poor or mediocre in broadband infrastructure and you want to get to the national average, you have to start a machine. Who wants to fund the R&D there? No one. Right. So what we find ourselves doing is doing that as a service to the community. We will get out and do the market analysis. We will bring on contractors from other communities because they've done it before. We will get out and do the discovery. We will do a lot of the work that maybe others are not ready to do and then kind of serve it up to them on a platter and say, hey, look, we did a lot of this work. You're doing a lot of similar things. Let's figure out how we would do it. Otherwise, we'd be at a stalemate. You know, it's like, well, we need this work and we need you to fund the work. And they're saying, well, we don't even understand what the work is. So you just have to do the work, you know, is that that working for free kind of thing. And then you can get that to onboard some resources, bring on a few more partners and move it forward. Sometimes that work takes a few years. Right. Right. Some of the work we're doing on the digital city and some of this other cultivation, it's taken 10 years. You know, so it's it's just a matter of who are who are what we call the loss leaders. Right. Yeah in order to bring on the next folks who can then invest and take it forward. And so our, our whole mission, we're a small organization. It's a win when the bigger economic groups embrace it and now amplify it and move it forward because they have more resources to do it. Yeah. It's also interesting to me, Andre, when you, when you find those one or two catalysts, it can, it can really take off. Let's zoom out a little bit. Why do you think or what are your thoughts on small businesses and startups as a key to the U.S. economy, just as a whole? Well, it's, it's, it's big. I mean, again, if you look at the, the statistics, most all net new jobs come from 
high-growth entrepreneurial companies, typically less than 20 employees. It doesn't mean that they produce the most jobs. It means they're the biggest net producers of jobs. So if you are not investing in young companies, you will always fail. You know, I brought in my cousin, actually, uh, economist Edward Montgomery, and he served in a couple of different uh, presidential administrations. And, and he, you know, he talked with us about it. And a lot of folks don't like to hear it because, you know, a lot of times we, we are too heavy on the pilot incentive, right? Right. You yeah. know, and, and so that, that has been our, our main form of economic development. You need that. We have to do it. But we always say, for hey, for every $100 million in incentives, put 10% into young companies, Right. It's almost like an allocation, like an asset allocation. Why yes. would you not do that? Our portfolio for economic development needs to be more diversified. Right, The small business agenda and the startup agenda is critical. It's so critical that the pandemic exposed it even more. That sector was very antiquated, especially in Memphis, the lack of technology. When they had to shut down and do deliveries, Many of them didn't even have a way to do online delivery. They didn't even have a website to do it on because they never needed it. Right. Foot traffic was there. Mm -hmm. That lack of technology caused many of them to close down, right? And, and so this is what I mean by small businesses, give them the supports, technology. Do they understand data? Can you help them with their bottom lines? Startups who are trying to grow and move forward. And so I think for, for what we're looking at is not just how do we get back to where we were, Right. If you think about the trend of where the economy is going, how do we get further down to meet it where it's going to actually be? And, and we have to think that way with the small business environment. Every one of those businesses aren't coming back. I hate to say it that way. So we can't just say, let's get it back to where we were. We right. have to be thinking a little bit different. So if we really want job creation, we need to invest more capital, more resources and be able to help them to move forward. Um, and I think we have to be very intentional in a few different industries here in Memphis in order to do so. Because even our downtown core has not recovered because of the lack of companies moving back in to the downtown urban core. So the other piece is the pandemic really stalled our startup activity. The inability to meet in person has really stalled how we cultivate startups. Yeah. Um, and the virtual world has stalled that. As, you know, so we're hoping this year we can kind of come back out of the gates. But we need a major way to attract more companies again. We're kind of kind of went back about five years. Um, and we need a major way to give some of these small businesses a boost. They've really just kind of kicked the can down the road. And it's only a matter of time until we support them again. Yeah, it's funny. Get that runway or that cliff like you were talking about. And you you can't, you, you don't want to have a constant sort of approach. We just got to get to the next cliff. It's not, uh, it's stressful and not horribly sustainable. One thing I hope people are getting from this conversation is the the breadth of of your knowledge, but also like the nuance. And I mentioned at the beginning, and I want to just reiterate this. Um, one of the things that you do well is you don't comment if you don't know anything about it. And I've heard you say a million times, I, I just, I don't know, or I need to go figure it out. But I hope people are realizing that all these comments that you're making come from a really deep well of research and digging into stuff. And, and I do think that's connected to your credibility in the city and, and around the world. But we got to land the plane. If you, uh, one thing I did want to just maybe uh, uh, touch on just a bit, because you've, you've raised a lot of capital mm -hmm. in your career. 
when you're talking about this level of startups, particularly coming out of the pandemic and trying to 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 restart, if you will, what are some of the uh, key challenges that you see for raising capital? By that, I mean, there's lots of, you know, SPACs and there's lots of, of, of uh, money managers, um, but there's also the individuals. When you're doing true startups, those are super risky. Where do you see that capital coming from? Yeah. So, you know, let, let's think through a little bit of this and in, in our estimation, especially in the Memphis region to help kind of kickstart some of this again, right? We think we need another $50 million spread out over the next, you know, five or so years just to get more incubation activity going. Okay. And then you're going to need follow on capital for those stepping into more series A type investment and, and things of that nature. So we've been experimenting with a few things. So yes, you could use the traditional strategies, which are um, recruit an investment manager to allocate a small portion of their um, their investment in the hopes that they mature enough so they can invest in them at the stage they really want to invest in them, which of course we will do. We also have conglomerations of partners across the country who are looking for deals. So yes, we, we, can, we can go at it that way, but we have to get more creative. Um, one of the things I've enjoyed doing is, is working with a real estate development called the Walk On Union. And one of the things we're working with them on is, well, they looked at looking at their incentives, like a pilot, or at one point it was tax increment financing. And you use that and you say, we're going to do good by the community, create jobs, make this development, do all these great things. Well, they bought into startups. They bought into entrepreneurial activity. They said, we'll use some of our private equity and some of our dollars to invest in startups. So it was almost kind of a creative mechanism, right? It, it, it's, we're going to use these incentives to help us secure more financing. We're going to use some more private equity. And that was, for the first time ever, a really interesting way to provide capital to companies, right? We could do more of that, right? Imagine if, if every deal was buying into innovation, buying into entrepreneurial activity. And a requirement was you, you have to invest in innovation. You have to invest in these type things. Maybe not for everyone, but you're seeing policies be created around procurement with black businesses, right? There's even small business incentives that are out there. Well, if we want to be an innovative economy, start supporting these type things. So you can look at that. Others are taking dollars from government, both at the state level and on the local level, and pumping it in. You're starting to see that here. State of Tennessee has been doing that. We could use a lot more. Um, the federal government's actually bringing on what's called SSBCI dollars, State Small Business Credit Initiative, which is doing exactly this, right? I think the awesome. state of Tennessee is getting $100 million to support it. I mean, that's across the whole, sure. the whole country. But what happens after that? What's the follow-up? Keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Keep doing these yeah. creative mechanisms and don't wait until the next one. So that's what we have to do to hopefully jumpstart some of this activity where then you would have more venture activity embedded into kind of the fabric of how we do things. You know, you use the word creative and, uh, you know, I think a lot of people forget you need to be just as creative in the financing side yes. as you are in the development side. Yes. And that's one of the things you and I, because of our background and in finance. it's not cheap. Right, it's not. You know, we, not. we've spent dollars on accountants and lawyers structuring interesting ways to right. move it around just to find out it doesn't work. And then you yeah. got to try it again, right? I mean, these are things that, again, when you talk about private sector, there's many ways to get involved, Right. 
We need legal support, accounting support. We need to structure new deals. We need to come up with creative finance. I mean, these all help unlock ideas that say, if we unlock that, that's like $100 million of capital sitting there. Right. Right. So that's what we need to do. I love how you put that. Um, we are going to have to land the plane. And uh, in, in wrapping these podcasts up, I always like to ask three questions uh, to, to sort of wrap up. Um, one quote, one book, one person is kind of how I look at it. So if you could leave one quote with us today, this is the toughest question, um, what, what would it be? Oh, one quote. Could be someone that you've um, thought about recently. doesn't have to be like yeah, I mean, super life-changing. but One of my favorites is, um, you know, it's a flip a coin to a beggar is haphazard and, and superficial. We must explore the edifice that creates the beggar in order That's to create good. effective change and solutions. So Martin Luther King said that, you know, years ago, and it, it applies to pretty much everything, not just poverty or homelessness. Yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna have to think about that, but that's that's really good. I'm in, I'm envisioning our work in Ethiopia, right, where you see that sure a million times, literally driving down the street. Uh, one book, if you could recommend one book for us today, it could be something you're reading that has nothing to do with what we talked about. But what what's one book you'd recommend? It's tough to do. It is, I'm isn't it? Debating, do I give you just the easy one or? Are there really any scholars out there that want to dig in? <laughs> so the moral consequences of of um, of um, economic, uh, what is it called? Moral Consequences of Economic Truth, I think, by Benjamin Friedman. Ooh, um, you're going legit old school there. It's, it's pretty interesting read. You don't have to agree with all of the different right. principles that are in there, um, but I really like it because, um, you know, it, it talks about market forces, and um, some folks say, well, the market dictates what we do, so just let the market play out. People will make money if they make money, and those who don't, it is. And and there's a good chapter in there that speaks to the opposite of it that basically says, well, when the market is not working and communities are struggling, then it's time we have to intervene and step in. So right. it's just some interesting reads. Yeah, and I, you know, the key, like you said, no matter whether people uh, agree with some of it or not, it's the thought process. I was telling somebody uh, the other day along those same lines. He said, well, you know, I bootstrapped it, right. you know, that idea. And I said, well, what happens if they don't have boots to bootstrap? Right. And that's a very real problem. Yeah. And it's not, I mentioned Ethiopia. It's not just Ethiopia. It is Memphis, Tennessee. It's Detroit. It's San Francisco. We call that the life course perspective, who has the ability to fail enough times in order to succeed. Yeah, that's really, really good. All right, one person who significantly influenced your life, and in 30 seconds or less, how or why? Oh, man, well, that's... I'm going to give you one more uh, easy <laughs> question, but this will be your last hard one, sorry. Yeah, Because you've had some cool people. Now people will, will get mad at me. Oh, uh, that's, um, that's true. But I won't give them your home address so they can't come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I would say probably, I mean, if we if we could step outside of family, not yeah, to offend. Uh -huh. Yes. You know, we've already we already talked about family. Right. Right. Yeah. So so um, <laughs> yeah, I would say you know probably there was an old mentor that I had, Anthony DeStefano, up in New York. Yeah. You know, and um, it was just his mannerisms about things kind of taught me the business, mm -hmm. understanding people, and 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 following through on certain things. But there's a certain demeanor. And, yeah. and the fact that he let me shadow him and learn from him and work off him, um, there's still a lot of isms that I, I carry forward that that he brought to the table. Yeah. So I do think if there were more Anthony's, I think there's 
there's just a lot more impact. There's a lot more success out in the yeah. world. But it takes somebody willing to have the young punk, sure. the young punk Andre and the young punk yeah, Ed, yeah. <laughs> kind of asking dumb questions and just being there sure, and sure. not being afraid we're going to embarrass them. What is your favorite place to eat in Memphis? Well, these are these are impossible questions. Um, <laughs> today. We know, can go today so. on food. How's that? <laughs> um I'm interested in this because half the time I've never heard of places people want to well, go. Well, I mean, because but I'm I'm pretty traditionalist in some things. Yeah. So like, you know, I love a good steak, right? So you know, there's a couple of places I like to go for steak. I mean, I love a folks folly fillet. I love a Capitol Grill New York strip. Hard to beat. Um, you know, but I would say just in general, I really do like Echo. You really? Know? Yeah, yeah. I really All do right. like Echo because they have some unique things I can't get anywhere. Like this. Um, um, porcini mushroom spaghetti that they have that's just really really good so you're a legit foodie though from all over the world and stuff so you like like you kind of sure. need that kind of stuff yeah um, I mean, it's great uh, see i didn't give you the whole the 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 ultimate terrible question in memphis is your favorite barbecue see i didn't oh, give you that yeah. dude thanks a million for coming yeah thanks um, for having me yeah this has been a lot of fun i want to do uh i want to do more of these so we're going to have to have sure. uh, a few more and and um just see where it goes. Um, where can listeners go to learn more about what you guys are doing at StartCo, the uh, digital city and those types of things? Yeah, our website, neverstop.co, C-O. Um, there's a blog running on there. We've recorded some- um, Great blog, by the yeah, way. Virtual webinars that are on there if they want to see any of this talk. Um, so there's a lot of information there with links to the digital city and many other things that we didn't even get into today. Awesome. Can't tell you again how much I appreciate what you're doing. You guys are really having an impact um, that I, I don't even think we see, right? And the cool thing is I think it's an impact that's going to keep going on for years and years and years. So uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Um, to our listeners, hopefully this has been as fun for you as it has been for me, and hopefully it's been helpful on your own journey to impact. You can learn more about impact not just at uh, neverstop.co, which is the Start Co. website. It's a fantastic uh, resource center, but you can also go to edgallantine.com. We like to think there's a lot of really good white papers, website links, those sorts of things. You can buy the book Journey to Impact, uh, printed or in any major digital platform through our website, uh, Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, and randomly I found it at Target.com the other day. Um, we'd love for you to listen to our other podcasts and other interviews and leave us a review because we really value your feedback and we want to do our best to put people like Andre on the show that are doing and talking about things that are interesting that you want to hear. So again, thanks for listening. Until next time, all the best. Thank you for listening. We love your feedback. So please let us know what you thought about this episode as well as what you'd like to hear more of in the future. For more information, impact resources, or to purchase a copy of the book, Journey to Impact, visit edgillentine.com. That's E-D-G-I-L-L-E-N-T-I-N-E.com. The book is also available through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Target.com. For Ed Gillentine speaking inquiries or advertising opportunities, send us an email at ajourneytoimpact at gmail.com. This has been a presentation of the Journey to Impact podcast team. Executive producer, Ed Gillentine. Associate producer, Meredith Taylor. Produced and edited by Joey Woodruff. Special thanks to Stephen Chandler. Mm-hmm.